Fifth through eighth grade, stay up here if you didn't hear. Yeah. Ethan, don't go down there. Pay attention. I'll ask you questions next week about this sermon. Seriously, I will. I will. This is not beyond your understanding. Thanks to Lauren and the team. Those songs were perfect. In fact, I kid you not, I know the song, Oh Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which was the second to last song that we sang, um, which is a perfect song, not just for this passage, but a great song as a First Peter song. And I said to Joe on the way here, I was thinking about including, about quoting it at the end of my sermon, but didn't end up doing it. And then we show up here, and I got to hear it again. So maybe, in fact, you don't need these lyrics anymore, right? So, oh boy. (laughs) One second. I'm too far into it now. Here we go. Here we go. It's in music talk. But, but, maybe, I'm not good at ad-libbing or going off script, so it'll probably just sit there the whole time. But, maybe, maybe I'll remember uh, to include it, because the, the words are perfect. And the words of, of multiple songs we sang are perfect for different spots in our in our passage this morning. Which is First Peter, the first paragraph of First Peter. So if your Bibles aren't open to it... Um, Go ahead and open your Bibles there, and I'll start by asking you how you feel about tests. Yeah? They're better to give than they are to receive. When I was a, when I was a high school teacher, I was told that tests are bad. This is very much the cult, the culture of, of education is very much, um, against anything traditional at the moment. It comes and goes, but I was told tests are bad. Why would you put students through that? It's so boring and disengaging. I was told to do things uh, like have students make PowerPoint presentations, have students do group projects. So much more fun. They teach good skills, hypothetically, like how to talk in front of people, how to collaborate. Uh, what became obvious, though, is that, uh, is honestly what every single high school and college student in this room knows. Um, thank you for that chuckle, <laughs> Molly, I think. Uh, which is that presentations and group projects might be more fun, but in terms of proving what you have actually learned, they're more or less a joke. <laughs> File this under the, in the opinions of the speaker category. <laughs> Um, but I, the students in the room can back me up on this. The presentations go this way. You find info online or from a book. You put that info on a slide. You put the slide up in class. You read the words off of that slide. And as long as you literally do not faint, you will get at least a B <laughs> on that presentation. Probably an A. Probably an A. It's just how it works. Group work. Group work. Whenever a group project is announced in class, all of the laziest students rejoice together. They won't have to actually prove anything because every group has what I call the alpha of the group work, which is the person who says via verbal or nonverbal communication, don't mess this up for me. (laughs) Which usually means 
don't do anything. They're fine doing everything. They're, they're happy for you to reap the benefits of their A+, plus as long as they get the A+. Plus. Everybody's, everybody's thrilled because the other students get to ride their coattails. Everyone ends up successful. Quote, unquote. This is good. Joe just came in. She missed my education high horses. <laughs> no telling. For all the negative things that people say about tests, I think generally the reality is if you want a student to actually prove what they know, uh, especially when you have to have 30 of them all at one time prove what they know, there's probably not a better or more reliable way to do that than a good test. Of course, there are bad tests. There are bad ways to build a culture around tests. I don't mean to encourage those things, but... Tests are incredibly valuable in showing what students actually have in their mind. Can you think of any tests in the Bible, as in verses that actually have the word test in them? One of my favorite chapters starts with a verse that has the word test in it, which is Genesis 22. You don't have to turn there. Just mention what happens in Genesis 22. But in the very first verse, it says, God tested Abraham. And then it tells the story of what happens. It's Abraham's famous test where God tells him that he needs to kill his son as a sacrifice. And so Abraham is faced with this dilemma. He has faith in God. He knows God is not the kind of God who demands child sacrifice or who thinks murdering a person is okay, and yet this God that he trusts has told him to do something. And what we know, what scripture says, is that Abraham passed the test, so to speak. He decided that God must be planning on doing a miracle. It must be that I'll kill my son out of obedience and then God will immediately raise him from the dead or something like that. That's the conclusion he came to in this great test. And you would say the greatest test in Abraham's faith journey. Abraham's faith was proven to be very, very genuine. He could have ditched God. He could have said, no more. I trusted you up until now, but this is too far. So I'm not trusting you anymore. He doesn't do that. He chooses faith and believes that God is good. And therefore, God must be planning some way to make this a good thing. Today we're in the first full paragraph of 1 Peter, which is verses 3 through 12, and this passage is about uh, a couple of things. It's about being saved. We use the word salvation a lot in church, which is just a fancy biblical word for being saved. And this passage is going to talk about being saved in a couple of different ways. And it's also about suffering. <laughs> Suffering. The whole book of First Peter has a lot to, bit to say about suffering because the people Peter are writing to were suffering physical persecution. They were suffering for being Christians. Okay, they weren't suffering because they'd made poor life decisions or because they weren't doing what they should be doing. They're suffering because they were following Christ, and so this book has a lot to say about that. In these verses, we'll see that suffering is more or less synonymous with testing. Suffering is a test. Lots of passages of the Bible talk about suffering in a variety of ways. This one 
is going to show that God uses suffering as a test. So I think we're going to find in these two topics, salvation and suffering, the main point, the main point is that salvation comes through suffering. These things are not opposed to each other in the sense that they cannot coexist. It's almost as if they have to coexist. That salvation and suffering always come hand in hand and that God uses suffering to test our faith. He uses it to test our faith. So, we're gonna, <clears throat> we're gonna go through these verses. Lots of difficult passages in 1 Peter. Be a Berean, we say often, which means study it for yourself. Always ask yourself if what the preacher's saying is what the Bible is saying. We try the best we can, but we're fallible, and especially in a book like First Peter, which has a lot of difficult passages, you might find yourself wondering if what I'm saying is what you think that means. And that's great. And you should go and try and find out um, after I make my case for it to see to see where you stand on it. So there's kind of a general disclaimer. There are some things like that in this passage. We've got three sections here. Verses 3 through 5, Peter's going to talk about a future hope. A living hope, much like what we just sang about. And then in verses 6 through 9, he's going to talk about the present suffering that his friends are going through, the people he's writing this letter to. And then in verses 10 through 12, which we're actually going to talk about first, is this interesting add-on about the way uh, prophets and angels look on this whole salvation thing. Um, it's interesting. So we'll, we'll, go, we'll cover each of these three sections, and hopefully this paragraph makes sense to you and is uh, helpfully encouraging and convicting. So let me pray first, and then, we'll, and then we'll start reading and talking about this. Father, thank you for the songs that we have sung. Thank you for the living hope that we stand here confident, 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 uh, because of what Christ has done. His resurrection from the dead is a foretaste of our deliverance. As sure as it is that that happened, uh, we will see the future that you promise us. And Christ was raised from the dead. So we say with confidence, we fix our eyes on the living hope. And I pray that we would do that in these verses this morning and that you would be with us and that, as always, anything uh, useless or wrong would, that those things would bounce right off like a rock skipping over the water, but that the good things wouldn't and that the things of the Spirit and things that are true to your word would stick with us and convict us and challenge us and that this would be helpful as you seek to continue to grow us and grow our faith. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, First Peter 1, 3 through 12, I'll read, I'll read all the verses at once here, and then we'll talk about verses 10 through 12 quickly. <coughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, those last three verses are not as confusing as they sound. Though It's just the way it's said grammatically and the way the phrases work together makes it look more confusing than it is. I think verses 3 through 12 are actually one long sentence. Um, and the translation sometimes is a little choppy. But in verses 10 through 12, uh, Peter says, This salvation, which we're going to talk about this morning, the salvation described in these verses, was written about by Old Testament prophets. The prophets who prophesied about this grace, as they prophesied about it, were wondering how exactly this is going to play out. So we have the benefit of hindsight when we read passages like Isaiah 53, which to us are so obviously a description of Jesus coming and suffering, even though he was innocent, right? Like a lamb led to, slaughter, led to the slaughter. He's borne all our sins. We know that could only be talking about Jesus, right? He's, we know he's the only one who's borne our sins. Well, as Isaiah is writing that, he knows a whole lot less about the specifics of it than we do. He has faith in God to save him, like we do. He knows God will save him, like we do. But the specifics are unknown to him. So he's asking, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all these prophets are wondering, how we, when is this going to happen? Who is this son of man going to be? This person says they want to know. It's interesting to them. Okay? And apparently, in their inquiries, or as they're wondering these things, God tells them. Don't know how exactly, but God tells them, listen, what you're writing about, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. You're not going to see this. Verse 12, when it says it was revealed to them, they were not serving themselves, but you, meaning the things they wrote about, they weren't, they weren't describing events that they would see. And God apparently told them that. It was revealed to them that they're writing for people way down the road about this salvation and grace that would look who knows what, but it would be there. Okay. Then it ends with this phrase about the angels, uh, that these things are things into which angels long to look, which is interesting and tells us not nearly enough to draw any actual conclusions about what in the world it means, but... Angels have not experienced life and death and and sin and redemption the way we have. They're not humans. Our experience is foreign to them. So I think could suffice it to say they're looking at all of this that's going on in our lives 
and just wondering what exactly it's like. They wish they knew, in a sense. An interesting, an interesting add-on, but is a good lead into the first two sections because it reminds us how crazy, glorious, interesting our salvation is. That they would muster the interest and curiosity to ask specifics about how something is going to go about is a good thing. Sometimes we cannot muster enough curiosity to even ask obvious questions about what Bible verses mean. Just read them, and they go in, and they go out. We feel good about doing our Bible reading for the day, and that's that. Our salvation is complex and multifaceted and amazing enough that it's worthy of our inquiries. And these first two sections won't spell it all out, but they spell some of the interesting complexities out pretty well. So go back with me now to verses 3 through 5, the first section. And this is where we're going to get these verses about the living hope. Peter is going to talk about this thing that's in the future, clearly in the future. They're not experiencing it now, but they will. In verse 3, he calls this future a living hope. In verse 4, he calls it an inheritance. In verse 5, he calls it salvation. And I think those three phrases are referring to the same thing. So in other words, he's not listing three different things they have to look forward to. He's he's explaining one future in three different ways, if you will. Okay, so as we read these verses, anyone who has decided to trust Christ and follow Christ... This applies to certainly most of Peter's readers, if not all. I pray most, if not all of us, here in this room. Although it does give a reason to point out that there's a difference even between accepting something as true and putting your trust in it to save you. Joe and I have a three and five year old and they accept almost everything we say as true. Are bananas, you could ask them, are bananas yellow? Yep. Are apples red? Sometimes. Sometimes they're green. Did Jesus die for your sins and rise from the dead? Yep. They just accept it as true. They touch the hot, we've told them if you touch the hot stove, you're gonna get burned. Okay. They accept it as true. They don't reject it. But that is not the same as what we pray and hope for, which is that they get to a point where they don't just accept it as a true fact. They put their trust in it to save them. That's A key difference, a life or death difference, to say the least. So, so, assuming you have done that, that you don't just sit here and say, I know God exists, I know Jesus died for my sins, but you say, not only do I know that, but I'm putting my trust in it to save me, then what we're reading here applies to you. Peter's friends had lives filled with uncertainty and instability. So foreign to us, there is not even an illustration that would make us feel the kind of instability that they're feeling. But as Peter describes their future, he describes it in ways that are the exact opposite of that. Not unstable at all. Okay, his first phrase in verse 4, a living hope. Uh, hope is a word, many of you may have heard before, that means something different to Peter than it means to us most of the time we use it. Some of you hoped the Chiefs would win last week. Some of you hoped the Eagles would win last week. 
Chiefs fans might say, I knew they were going to pull it out in the end, but that's just not true. Of course they didn't know that. They just hoped that that would happen. It was not a sure hope. It was a thrilling, edge of your seat, don't know what's going to happen hope, which is great for watching football. Not great for all of eternity. (laughs) So, when Peter uses the word, he's not talking to people who had just watched the Super Bowl and used this word in a particular way. He's using a word that would have been clear to them, which means a sure expectation. It's alive, it's not dead, it's set in stone, rock solid, not a wobbly hunch or a desire. It's indisputable. And it's certain because, the end of verse 3 says, it's founded upon or based upon a fact of history, which is the resurrection of Jesus. They've been born again, it says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through meaning based upon the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So, if the question is, is this going to happen? The question really is, did Jesus rise from the dead or didn't he? If he did, it's sure to happen. It's so sure to happen, it's as if it already has. Just like Christ's death and resurrection. In verse 4, he describes the living hope another way, this future. He describes it as an inheritance. It brings to mind what a father passes down to a child. This is something they will receive And he describes this inheritance again in ways that are the opposite of what Peter's audience is experiencing. They're facing threats of death. Some of them probably, surely had died. If not, some would go on to die of persecution. But their inheritance is imperishable, Peter says. It cannot be killed like they can be. They're facing defilement, which means evil is touching their life. And impacting their life. The evil of other people. But, Peter says, their inheritance is undefiled. No evil can touch it in any way that will change it whatsoever. They're watching things decay, as we all do. Their possessions, their bodies are being beaten down by the passage of time. Nothing on earth escapes the effects of time. But their inheritance is unfading, which means time has no effect on it whatsoever. They are tempted, as we all are, to focus on physical earthly treasure, which is especially a temptation, I would think, when you're being physically persecuted. To focus on the physical, the points of pain that you're being attacked with. Do you remember Christ warned his disciples Peter would have been there when Christ said, don't store up treasures on earth because they are victim to decay and defilement. Store up treasure in heaven. And that's what Peter says about their inheritance. Not only is it unfading, but it's kept in heaven for you. So it's not in a bank vault or an armored car or Fort Knox or behind some perfect web security or anything like that. It's in heaven. It's in heaven. Waiting for you. God is keeping it there for you. If you look at verse 5, the end of verse 5, Peter calls what he calls a living hope in verse 3 and an inheritance in verse 4. In verse 5, he calls salvation. He calls it a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
This brings up that word salvation. I told you this passage has a lot to say about salvation. Whenever you see the word salvation or saved in the Bible, your question should be saved from what? Saved from what? And there are a lot of different answers to that question in the Bible. You might have, as you read this word salvation, instantly thought, saved from my sins, justified by Christ. That doesn't work, though, because this salvation has not been revealed yet. It's ready to be revealed, but it's not revealed yet. Which means Peter's not talking about that salvation that has been revealed and is effective now. Right? I've accepted Christ, which means Jesus Christ now lives in me. My sins are washed away. It's not that they will be when I die. They are now. It's been revealed. This one hasn't been revealed yet. So the question is, what what do Peter's friends, his audience, need to be saved from that they are not yet saved from, but will be? And I think the answer is all the effects of sin around them, which in their case was fairly evident. It was persecution. So they've been saved from their sins, but they're still dealing with the effects of sin. They need to be saved from it, and they will be. We will be saved. That salvation is waiting for us. Christ will come back and say, the test is over. It's over. Now, I'm saving you out of even the negative effects of sin in other people. We fight sin in ourselves, too. So, in these first three verses, what an encouraging way to start the letter. You know, I think Chad mentioned last week, this letter's a... I can't remember the fancy word for it. Who cares? It gets passed around from church to church. He lists in verse 1 all the pla- all the Christians he's writing to in all these places... Right, So his letter would have been taken to one church. They probably read it, and I hope made a copy, I'm sure, made a copy of it. And then the guy hopped back on his horse and went to the next town and read it to them. And they made a copy, and on on and on it goes. So you imagine being one of these believers, we're getting a letter from Peter. Be like, you mean Pete the plumber down? No, I don't mean Pete the plumber. I mean the Peter, the apostle. He's sending us a letter. What is he going to say? I don't know. They open it up. They read it publicly. And the first thing after the hello in verses 1 and 2 is this. What a great thing to read right off the bat. This is waiting for you, my suffering friends. All these descriptors of it. I'm tempted to say it all over again, but I won't. The next section Peter knows or hopes that the future gives courage. It encourages them. It gives them courage in the present. But he also knows that the suffering they're facing threatens to take that courage away consistently. So in verses 6 through 9, Peter speaks to their suffering. I told you this passage is about salvation, which we've talked about and will again, because it comes up in the end of verse 9. It's also a passage about suffering, and here's where Peter talks about suffering and emphasizes the way God uses it to test. Verse 6, In this you rejoice. That is all that I just told you in verses 3 through 5. Surely, obviously, you rejoice in this, though now, for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And they have. 
In chapter 2, people will, uh, Peter will mention them being verbally slandered as Christians, them being beaten for doing what's good. In chapter 3, he'll mention them being reviled. In chapter 4, he'll mention them being insulted. Besides that, we have the historical record of how Christians were treated in this part of the world at this time in history, and it's not good. Peter says, I know you've been grieved, which is a good word because it kind of applies to to any kind of suffering, right? Instead of saying, I know you've been attacked or I know you've been beaten, which would err on the physical, or instead of just saying, I know you've been insulted and slandered, which has more of an emotional effect, he says, you've been grieved by a variety of things and it's hurting you in a variety of ways. Whether you're the person beaten or the six-year-old kid whose mom and dad was beaten and is dealing with the effects indirectly. You've been grieved. And then verse 7, which is good news, though it's a tough pill to swallow, a tough pill for all of us to swallow. In verse 7, he gives them this key statement about the role of suffering in their life. So that you have been grieved, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Meaning your faith is like gold. Both of these things are tested, but even gold can be destroyed. Your faith is more precious than that. And so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Excuse me. <coughs> the world asks us, how can a good God allow suffering? And the assumption of that question is that suffering is meaningless and therefore a bad thing. That's what they're assuming when they ask it. We often assume this ourselves when it happens to us. This can't possibly have a purpose. Therefore, it's meaningless. It's useless. Therefore, it's bad. And why would a good God let a bad thing happen? It's the same. It's the issue Abraham, Abraham had to grapple with. This is the test. How can a good God make a bad thing happen? What this verse tells us and offers us which people who don't know Christ do not have, but what the scripture offers us is that suffering is purposeful. And because it is purposeful, it does have meaning and therefore is good. It's a good thing. Not good in the way chocolate chip cookies are good or a wedding day or a birthday party. Holler to my brother Mark, 7-0 this week. Great party yesterday. It's when I when I say to you that suffering is good and that what this teaches is what this teaches. No, I'm not saying that or that it should feel the way you feel when you eat a chocolate chip cookie. How is it good? I think it's good because and I think these verses teach that it's good because God gets to see and reward the genuineness of your faith. He gets to see it himself And he gets to reward it. Two things that he wants to do. He gets to see it. Peter uses the metaphor of gold being refined. You want to figure out how genuine gold is? 
how much of what you're looking at is actually true gold versus the dirt and the gunk, and I don't know that much about gold, but whatever else gets in there, how much of it is that versus the real thing? You burn it. You burn it. It separates the good from the bad, and you see what's left. It's tested through fire. How does God see or figure out the genuineness of your faith? He tests it with trials. And unlike gold, as Peter said, which can be, def- can be destroyed, your faith can't. And God sees it as something more precious than even the most valuable physical thing on earth. And he wants to see it. He's trying to experience with you the beauty of your trust in him. <clears throat> Now, I wonder if this question crosses your mind, which is the question that crossed my mind, which is why I'm bringing it up, which is, doesn't God know whether your faith is genuine or not without testing you? He knows everything, right? So why does, why exactly does he have to test you? Can't he just look into the future and see what you'll do and say, okay, Abraham would have been willing to sacrifice his son. Let's save the hassle. Save him from all the suffering. Save him from all the suffering. I have the information I need. God knew Abraham would pass the test. And yet, at the end of Genesis 22, those of you who know the story might remember, Abraham has the knife lifted and is ready to deal the death blow to his son. And the angel of the Lord, who's probably Jesus, steps in and says, stop. I'm not quoting. This is a paraphrase if you didn't catch that. He says, stop. You don't have to kill your son. Now I know, Mike, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks. So nice. All right. There's no good place to put this up here. He says to Abraham, now I know. Now he knows? Didn't he know before that Abraham... I feel so much better now that that water's in my throat. Didn't he know before? Didn't he know before that Abraham was going to be willing to do it? Well, yes, he did, but he wanted to see it. He wanted to go through this with Abraham. We say we have a God of relationship. This is the kind of thing we mean. He knows everything about everyone and everything that's going to happen, but here we are. It's a relationship. It's an experience. And he wants to go through this experience with you to see your genuine faith. He and Abraham lived through that crazy day, crazy few days, and will have that shared experience for all eternity. The way we have shared experiences with our loved ones that we hold on to forever, that connect us forever. They'll have this. And that's what God wants. He wants to see it. More than just wanting to see it, I think these verses in Peter show us he wants to reward it. See this at the end of verse 7. So that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and honor, excuse me, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the instant question is, who's getting the praise, glory, and honor? Are we giving it to Jesus, or is he giving it to us? And I think it's the second one. The context is clear in in this verse and the one after. Peter's talking about their faith being tested and what it's going to profit them 
in the testing. There's plenty of, of um, plenty of verses in Scripture that make it clear God does praise people. People praise God. God praises people. People worship God. God does not worship people. Worships for God. Worships for God. Okay? Learned that last fall. I remember that sermon. Okay? But, but I think here, the praise and glory and honor that Peter's talking about, he's saying you have to look forward to assuming your faith through its testing proves to be genuine. To the degree, we might say, that your faith is genuine, you will receive these things from Christ. And of course, there are a variety of degrees. I, I definitely believe it's true. Some Christians become, become true Christians. They place their trust in Christ and then choose to be lazy their whole lives. Disregard the scripture, disregard the church community, just kind of float along, riding that get out of hell free card all the way to the end. Those people are not going to receive the kind of thing Peter's talking about here. They'll get into heaven based on Christ's work, but they're not going to get praise and glory and honor for having genuine faith. Think about the people you know who, from your perspective at least, give everything for Christ. Everything. Everyone knows their internal struggles, but some people are just willing to give more than others. Some people have stronger, more genuine faith than others. Than others. What we strive for is the opportunity for our faith to grow. We walk by faith. So often we think of faith as a one-time thing. I have placed my faith in Christ and I'm good to go, and in some sense you are, but scripture says we walk by faith. Abraham needed a whole bunch of faith on that day to do what he had to do. Peter's readers need and will need a whole bunch of faith to do what they have to do. We suspect, we perhaps wonder if we will need a whole lot of faith to do what God calls us to do in the future especially those of us who are younger and who, Lord willing, aren't getting out of Dodge anytime soon and will be here. History swings back and forth. This is not a prophecy, okay? But one of the many reasons we're preaching First Peter is because the elders said, and we think, how will we possibly be prepared for the kind of suffering that might lie ahead? We're trying to find that preparation uh, in the Scriptures, in the scripture. So it's both convicting and encouraging, right? It's convicting because on that genuineness of faith spectrum, most of us are somewhere in the middle, but should be striving, striving by reading the word and fellowshipping with Christ and fellowshipping believers to strengthen our faith to the extent that when it is tested, which is all but sure to happen, it's proven to be genuine. It's proven to be genuine. And to the extent that many of you have grown a genuine faith, should be encouraged that God loves to see it and he looks forward to rewarding you for it. Now, last verse. Oh, I forgot to set my watch. My last sermon, if you had asked me, I would have said was like maybe 25 minutes long and it was 53 minutes long. So I was going to set a watch, but forgot. So say la vie. <laughs> yeah, the, the takeaway is I'm having a lot more fun than you are. Because time flies when you're having fun. 
get to the end, the end of this section in verses 8 through 9. Plenty of motivation in verses 6 and 7, but 8 and 9... These beautiful phrases, and then verse 9, which brings up salvation and prompts us to ask the same question that we asked about salvation when it was mentioned the first time. Verse 8, though you have seen, though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter commends them. Peter had seen Christ, walked with Christ. These guys hadn't. Says, you guys haven't even seen him, you love him. You do not now see him. Jesus doesn't show up to church with us. None of you are going to see Jesus, probably, I guess. Hesitate to make blanket statements. You're not going to see Jesus in the flesh anytime soon. We will in the end. You do not now see him, but you believe in him. And I think as you move on in this verse, the the next thing mentioned is the result of that faith. You believe in him, and that faith in him, despite the fact that you can't see him, results in you rejoicing with joy. This is one of those beautiful oxymorons. You're rejoicing, which is an expression. And then Peter says it's inexpressible. You're rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's the result of your faith, despite your circumstances. And in this way, I think... Okay, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And in this way, they are, next phrase, obtaining the outcome of their faith. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, Peter says. And then he calls that outcome the salvation of your soul. So, lots of phrases. Don't mean for it to be confusing, but I think what Peter's saying is, It's beautiful, your faith, despite not having been through all the life experiences I have been through. Peter, I mean, Chad went through the ups and downs of Peter's faith journey with Christ. That's not their journey. But they have faith in him anyway. And because of that faith, even though they're being beaten and insulted, and their life is totally unstable and unpredictable, they rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, indescribable. And in that way... They're obtaining the fruits of their faith, the salvation of their souls. So the word salvation is there. What are they being saved from? This can't be the salvation mentioned in verse 5, because in verse 5 it says that salvation hasn't been revealed yet. This salvation, apparently, they're experiencing right now. They're obtaining it right now as the outcome of their faith. I think what they're being saved from here is the despair and depression and discouragement that they should be experiencing amidst their persecutions. So the point is, you're saved. We will be saved from every sinful thing and effect of sin in the end. But even now, even right now, because of the faith that we have, we can face anything and still rejoice and be joyful. It's not easy. This passage isn't really about how to express that or how to get that. The Bible speaks of that in plenty of places. But we don't have to give in to despair. We're saved from that. That salvation we get to experience as a fruit of our faith. This is why those of you who who read about missionaries or read Voice of the Martyrs, they're, they're... Persecuted Christians do not tend to be sad Christians. They just don't. 
It's just a generality from what I've read. They, they tend to, I don't mean to say they're blind to the reality of their problems, but they seem to have found this joy. They seem to be more joyous than most of us are. The persecution has tested their faith shown the genuineness of their faith, and that genuineness give birth to jo- gives birth to joy in a place where joy should not be found. Some of these stories are crazy. We think persecution's coming. People around the world have been getting killed for being a Christian for many, many, many years. Now, as we close, I think about how, I think about how to apply this, okay? This, this great passage, Here's your future. Think on this. I know you're suffering. God's using it to see the beauty of your faith, and he'll reward you for it. Glad you're joyful. Well, we're not in their situation. By virtue of the fact that we're sitting in this room and I'm not being arrested right now, we're not in their situation. We're not. So, in that sense, we can't apply it to the extent that Peter wants them to apply it. And yet, we're trying to prepare ourselves. Right? For anything, for any test that lies ahead. Salvation and suffering go hand in hand and God uses it to test our faith. So, if I could encourage you in any way to apply this, <coughs> I'd say for me personally, the mindset shift that suffering is a test, that God's using it as a test, is pretty encouraging and empowering. So Genesis 22 starts, and God tested Abraham and then tells the story. So you wake up tomorrow on Monday, and if someone were to write the narrative of your Monday, it could start with the words, God tested Lev on Monday, right? You wake up with that mindset. There's something about viewing potential suffering as an opportunity to show God your faith, that is encouraging and gives strength, I think. So however it is you might remind yourself of that, if you don't remind yourself of that, if you're not aware of these truths, then the suffering hits and the knee-jerk reaction takes over. Takes over, which is, why is this happening? Why is God doing this to me? Does he even love me, right? All logical questions, and it's not that you won't have to process those questions even with the right mindset, But preparation for it, as Peter's trying to prepare his readers for it, will enable them to see it for what God sees it as, which is an opportunity to see his child express their love and faith in him, which is a good thing. This is why teachers give tests. tell my students all the time, I'm desperate to find out everything you don't know. Now, God's not in the, not the gotcha kind of person that I am as a teacher, right? But it serves, it serves a purpose. I hope it's encouraging to you. The words of the song have, as I predicted, sat here unread for the entire sermon. But, um, let's close in prayer and, and just be reminded that Christ and His resurrection is our hope and that these truths can be helpful to us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. We pray that if and when you see fit to allow us to be persecuted the way Peter's friends were, to be beaten and insulted and thrown in prison and killed and torn apart just because we say we follow Christ, 
that if that happens, we would have the strength to turn to scriptures like this and show you our faith as individuals, as a church body, that we would be motivated by the motivation you give us, the future that lies ahead, which is incredibly stable and sure, your desire to see us as faithful people, and your desire to reward us when we see Christ, that we would be motivated by all these things and that they would help our perspective uh, despite what it is may lie ahead. Thank you for these words, as difficult as they are, and I pray that you would bless them to our edification. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Enjoy fellowship time.